Food Stealers and Spook Specialists. Bait and switch a bushel of bamboozlement. Transform a man head into an ass head. And please, whatever you do, don't throw me into the briar patch. Because it's time to talk tall to me? Welcome back, I am Omen Thomas Sade. And I am Nick McGill. Together we are Feckless Momes. And this, you tricky little scamps, is Talk Tall to Me. A tumultuous trick-or-treat in the terrarium of Prog Rock, in which nose-tweaking Nick and obscuring Omen will wheedle our way into the cracks of every single stony song with which nice and naughty rock band Jethro Tull has ever surprised the unsuspecting public. We will give you the Joe Parrish heebie-jeebies, frighten the Scott Hammond horses, and exacerbate your John O'Hara jitters. And if we can run with the speed of a six-legged horse, jump with the power of a fast-talking spider, and survive with the tenacity of a coyote, we just might live to get our white feathers scorched black by the solar Scotsman, the dashing daddy of ditties, Mr. Give Us More of that flute d'amour, Ian Goodfellow Anderson. That's good. Was it the Daddy of Ditties? Was that the one that got you? No, it was um, Give Us More of the Flute d'Amour. Yeah, yeah. That's what no. got me. <laughs> if Ian Anderson had his own tarot card, he would be the Daddy of Ditties instead of like the King of Swords. King of Cups, yeah. No. Yeah, I like that. Is the six-legged horse, is that sleep near? Yes. Is it a reference to Sleepnir? Okay. Yeah, it is a reference to Sleepnir, yeah. Who is not a trickster, but is the progeny of a trickster. Sure is. Okay, just as long as we're clear on that. So, Nick, today it is great to see you. It is great to be talking tall. And about which that which we are to be talking the tall regarding will be in very much so a song entitled... What is the title of it, Nick? <laughs> Trickster and the Mistletoe. Ooh, boy. Trickster and the Mistletoe. We are, at the end of this episode, we are three quarters of the way through this gosh darn album. Those fractions just keep on coming. <laughs> that they do. Trying to, I'm trying to subtly teach you math. <laughs> is it working? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> Ask my accountant. <laughs> I can confidently tell you that it's 1,007% working. Yeah. Shall we have a listen to Trickster and the Mistletoe? Yeah. Yeah, why not? Let's do it. Let's. I mean, that's why we're here, Omen. That's what the judge tells me. This entire podcast has been community service. <laughs> State mandated Court ordered, community yeah. service. Yes, exactly. Right, right. I didn't make you pay alimony, but I did make you have to do this podcast with me. <laughs> that was the uh, the agreement. <laughs> Nick. Omen. That was Trickster in the Mistletoe. It sure was. What are your initial thoughts when you heard this song open for the first time? 
What were your thoughts on Trickster and the Mistletoe? I think that this song is a good representation of the album, my experience of the album, in that when I heard, okay, it's going to be an album about Norse mythology, I thought, I feared that it was going to be ponderous. Hmm, yeah. And the first couple of tracks confirmed that fear. I was like, oh man, it's going to be this, <laughs> they are, it's yeah. going to be this like, <laughs> this Norse, you know, dirge kind of like scary, mm-hmm. spooky, misty stuff for the entire time. Tracks like this are so delightfully surprising. This and All Father yeah. are both so fun because they're bringing the fun. They're putting the fun back in Norse mythology. And I think that that is something that is sorely lacking in most representations of Norse mythology. Like, I think the Greek myths, it's easy to find the fun in that. But I think that often Norse mythology, you're like, you get that sense of like, oh, everything's very much like this all the time. This is so delightful. I love this track. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Musically, it's a sound that kind of comes out of nowhere. I feel like while All Father is like, straight out of left field it it feels sonically it feels like it fits where it is this one it was just a straight up like where is this coming from where did the dropkick murphys come in here like why are, why are they playing this <laughs> yeah <What's happening>? yeah <laughs> especially coming off the back of track seven the perfect one yeah which does have more of that very serious we're talking about a tragedy here and then we're switching to the song that is about the executor of that tragedy the impetus behind that tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it's like, right, let's drink a Guinness and put on our dancing boots and uh, hop, skip, and jump down the road. But the the thing is, that jiggy sound is only a a kind of a small portion, maybe a third of this song. It then gets into that kind of like trudging, and then we get some of those really like hard electrical stings too. Yes. So it's... It's not just that, like, I'm going to go to Boston and listen to faux Irish bands. There's so much more to it. You're right. You're right. They're not getting jiggy with it the entire time. Na, 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 na. <laughs> getting jiggy with it? Yeah? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> Come on. I know cultural references from the early 90s. 95? <laughs> From the late 20th century, from the late 1900s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when we were in our prime. Very well observed. We have that out of the gate sound, that Irish feeling kind of sound that harkens back a little bit to some of the uh, the folk albums, the folk triptych albums. I'm getting a bit of Heavy Horses bonus track, maybe, or even a little broadsword. Like a lighter piece on from Broadsword? Yep, totally. Oh, and just to, to note, within that section, within the lilting section, we have accordion galordian. <laughs> that we do. It's so much fun. We also, in that early section, kind of in the transition where it goes from that lilting Irishman do coke for the first time sound... <laughs> to the more hard electric bits. Yes. We have this incredible, I love this first couple of, this first 30 seconds where you have some blank space, you have some negative space in the music. 
where you have that dum dum. Yeah, we hear that a couple of times in here. It's so much fun. I love that technique in music in general. I think that in general, the negative space is not explored sufficiently right. for most artists. It is really effective. I think it, it could very easily fall into the category of overused, mm. but Ian is using it to great effect here and in, in previous pieces just on this album. It's really fantastic. Then we have Joe Parrish James coming in mm. fully turnt. Ah! He had his Wheaties this morning that he recorded this. Yeah. I have been loving his work all throughout this album. Very impressive. But this track has really kicked him into the next level of temperature. It's like when you have a flame and at a certain temperature it's it's orange and then it gets hotter and it goes red, then it goes even hotter and it turns... This is... He's white hot. You should not look at his guitar playing directly. You should, you should only view it through a welding mask. Absolutely. 100%. It will burn you. It will burn your retinas. It'll burn your skin. But it's a good burn. It's a good... <laughs> My ophthalmologist disagrees, but I... But damn him! Yeah, fair enough. Everybody is, is like, really solid on this song. I hear David's bass. Yes. Very solidly. What is the spear of I hear Scott's drums, very, very great drums on here. We have those like synth organ stings that that follows yeah. after the, the really yeah. hard, like sharp electric. But there's also a plethora of synth strings in here beneath the waves. Yes. It's not like, oh my God, synth is happening right now. It's beneath and it's really nice. If you can pick it out, it's very difficult to hear, but when you do, it's, it's very flowy. It's nice. I like that touch. This entire album is so well layered. It is, it is so well constructed. It really, really is. I'm very impressed with this album. The drums go crazy in this and what I'm particularly impressed by Scott Hammond on this track is his ability to be really splashy and really cacophonous with the drums for some of it, mm -hmm. and then narrow in and produce this incredibly precise, very sparse almost sound that just does exactly what it needs to do, brings the song along, gets out of the way, when it needs to, and then provides that sense of, like, abandon in another moment. And he's switching on a dime back and forth. Yeah, it's, everybody's really playing that part very well. Yeah. This song is made up of, I guess, I would say maybe three separate sounds yes. that if pulled out would be totally fine on their own. And because of that, it is sometimes a little jarring to be like, oh, oh this is happening now? Okay, all right, I'm here for it. This is happening, okay. Yeah. But everyone, every step of the way, really plays the hell out of that specific part. And then the transition is instantaneous. And there's nobody who's like, I'm going to play this theme all the way through. Right. 
there's nothing to keep the pieces going until we go back to a sound that we've already heard. And it's like, oh, okay, we're, this is mm -hmm. sonically here. I would say rather than like lyrics falling into verse, chorus, bridge, it feels like the music hits those yes. points. Yes, yes, I agree. It's interesting. It's it's really it's a really odd construction here. It's sort of like theme, counter theme, theme, counter theme, go crazy, anti theme, freestyle. Yep, <laughs> yep. The theme is just kill it. Yep. And then back to the theme. And then end it fairly abruptly. It kind of comes to a, a quick button, not an instant cutoff, but it's like, and we're done. And that switching between all those different musical patterns that you observed that's done so flawlessly is made even more difficult by the fact that a lot of what they're playing is just chock full of 16th notes. It's very fast. Just teeming with very fast rhythms. It's lousy with them. Yeah. Infested. We have to spray for it. Ian's voice in this is very good. Energetic. Those those parts where he's not talk singing, those sweet high bits, he gets up there, he doesn't strain, he doesn't need to do any falsetto. His voice is very good in this one. And even the talk singing is another unexpected element. You would expect, I would expect listening to something like this, that it would be just, okay, I'm going to try to, you know, Irish tenor it. Yeah. Or rock scream it. Mm-hmm. But no, he has those lilty parts, and then he goes into that kind of almost gruff talk singing. Yeah. Yeah. At 2.10, thereabouts, mm -hmm. Joe Parrish does some of the most spectacular guitar work that I think we have heard in Jethro Tull in a very long time, even rivaling some of Martin Barr's work. I can't <gasps> believe I just Ooh. said that. I know. Oh, Yeah. It's virtuosic. It's sick. That guy has skills. I'm very, very impressed and I'm enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you listen to a musician, you're like, yeah, yeah they can play very fast. Good for them. Mm -hmm. But it does nothing to my soul. Right. Sometimes you're like, oh, wow, they're touching me in a special way and I love it. But also they don't really have a technique. They're just kind of like, cool. Ah, uh, sure. Mm -hmm. It's rare to find somebody who is able to combine those two things. Martin is able to do that. Yeah. And I feel like Joe Parrish is also able to do that. He's bringing power, he's bringing depth, he's bringing emotion, but he's doing it with such, such accuracy. Yeah. They're not identical levels of like badassery. Like it's a Venn diagram. They share a lot of commonality, but they also have very different sounds and very different techniques as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think if you were to play two separate riffs, I don't think I would ever be like, I don't know who that is. I think I could very oh, comfortably no. pick them out. I haven't listened to a lot of Albion, Joe Parrish James's other band, I believe his original band. So I, I can't quite speak to it, but I, from what I've heard of it, it does seem a little bit lighter than this, which maybe listening to that, I could think like, oh, maybe that's Martin. I don't know. I do. I, I keep thinking that I have to listen to it, but I don't think they're on Spotify, which makes it difficult. They're on, on YouTube, I believe. Oh, yeah, I just looked them up and I didn't really see anything. 
Yeah. There's another part where I think it's one of the last verses that Ian sings where Joe Parrish is playing either a fifth above or a fifth below Ian. The It's really great because he's really following Ian's vocal line very, very closely and supporting it without subsuming to it. Mm -hmm. Without becoming subsumed in it. Yeah. Being subservient to it. Yes. Yeah. He's just servient. Ian's the dom in this relationship. Yes, but Joe Parrish is a bossy bottom. You mentioned Sleepnir, or you alluded to Sleepnir in the intro. You want to talk about Sleepnir? Sure. So Sleepnir or, or, or Sleepnir is a six-legged horse mm-hmm. that Loki rides around on, I believe. It's a little more special than that. Well, it is the offspring of Loki. And? And a horse, some sort of a sexy horse. Mm, kind of. Kind of. Let's hear it. So the gods are like hanging around or whatever. They're thinking like, you know, the the giants are going to come attack us at some point. We should probably have like a wall to prevent it. Sure. Okay. This is sounding familiar. They're thinking, oh, it's going to take us forever. It's going to take us forever to build, hashtag build the wall. And this traveler shows up with his horse and says, you know what? I can do it and I'll do it in nine months. I'll do it in nine months, like three seasons, I think he said. And if I do it in that amount of time, you have to give me one of the goddesses' hands in marriage. Frigg, Freya, I don't think it was her. Probably. Else. One of them. It could have been, yeah. And they're like, okay, we'll do it, but you only have three months or six months to do it. You've got okay. less time. And they're like, why are we going to do that? He's not going to be able to do it. And they said, yeah, he's going to fail, and then we'll have half of a wall built. So we'll just do the other half. Practical. Practical to the last. He goes with his horse and he comes back and he's carrying these massive stones and this horse is dragging these massive stones back and he's he's building, he's he's going along and he's going at a clip and everybody's like, he's, he's doing really, he's getting really close here. I don't feel comfortable with this. Especially oh. Freya was like, no, this is not cool. So I see where this is going. Yes, yes, They go yes, to Loki, yes. the shapeshifter. Yes. And he turns himself into a very, very pretty horse. He turns himself into a mare. Yes. And attracts the horse away from this this builder. To slow down the process. They disappear into the woods. The guy never manages to finish it and gets really pissed. He still tries and he gets really pissed. And it turns out he was a giant, of course. Right. And they were like, we knew you were a giant because you could carry so many stones and you, you could reach up there and you were just in disguise. So apparently the giants can shapeshift too? Question mark. But after a certain amount of time, after the guy leaves, Loki comes back with a little baby horse with six yes. legs. Yes. So he's a, he's a horse mama. He is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm so glad that you recounted that because I have heard, I had heard that story. I read that story and it's so beautiful and it's so, it's so Bugs Bunny of him. Like, <laughs> it is. Yes. Hello yeah. there, sailor. But it's sort of, it's sort of, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it carries it a step further to, oh, I'm not just going to seduce you and then hit you over the head with a frying pan. I'm going to follow through. 
I'm a follow through so hard. I get horse pregnant. <laughs> Loki commits. If there's anything he we commits. learned, he commits to the bit so hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you got to respect that. You do. You do. And <laughs> and sometimes the consequence is you have a beautiful baby horse. And yeah. sometimes the consequence is you trick your nephew no your brother brother no he's he's odin's brother i think something like that so so hoder wouldn't be his maybe his nephew i don't know his you can say cousin cousin his cousin his cousin you trick your cousin into killing your other cousin yeah a little too far horse baby okay yeah yeah maybe just far enough Let's dive in to the lyrics and content of Trickster and the Mistletoe. Nick, this is the song regarding Trickster God of Norse mythology, Loki. That's right. Ian's little blurb from the book says, Loki, wily trickster, malicious, playful. Responsible for the death of Baldur, Loki fashions a spear of mistletoe given to and thrown by Baldur's blind brother, Hodur. Hodur. Which we talked about all about last week. Yeah. The whole setup, execution, and consequences of that experience. So this this song itself doesn't really get into that. It's, it's really more just kind of a general assessment of Loki. It's almost that these two songs are two sides of the same coin. Right. Because they're describing pretty much the same event. You have the setup and the death of Baldur. Mm -hmm. And then you have more of a, you know, a focused moment of what is this spear of mistletoe that flies like dart from brother's hand? Almost a, almost a, a, a crystallized moment of time. Mm Mm-hmm in the actual act of Baldur about to die. That's the jumping off point. We see the slow motion of the dart being thrown yes. and everything yes. stops. And then you, the camera pans to Loki, who's the only one moving. And then we get this kind of description of him. We get almost like a, a an instantaneous backstory prequel story of, of Loki here. Have you seen Hamilton, the Broadway hip hopera? I have not. It's on Disney Plus. There it will stay. <laughs> I've tried to and I I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't get past the first song. So You just hate the founding of the Federal Bank so much. Yeah. That's it. That's it. You got it. You cut to the core right from the start. <laughs> I am admittedly not necessarily a big fan of whatever. My personal opinion on this aside, I do think that Hamilton is one of the greatest works of art of the 20th century. Genuinely, I think it is really a a spectacular oeuvre. And even if everything else that man did was complete nonsense, which a lot of it is, then still he has my respect for having created that. The music for Moana and Encanto are flawless. I don't love the music for Moana. Oh, I really like it. Hmm. Well, it's okay to have an, a wrong opinion about things. No, it's not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> But anyway, the structure of Hamilton is really gorgeous, and he does some really fascinating things, including 
making the storyteller of the show not the main character. Mm -hmm. So much like how Amadeus is about Amadeus Mozart, but is told from the perspective of uh, Salieri, Hamilton is about Alexander Hamilton, but is told from the perspective of Aaron Burr, who eventually kills him in that duel. You get some really interesting perspective about, you know, from Aaron Burr throughout the show. In the last scene, or penultimate scene, where they have that duel, they lead up to it, they build up to it, and up to it, and up to it, and up to it, and then at the moment, and it's this big, big, big musical swells on swells on swells, building up to them going over to New Jersey, them setting up, checking the guns and all this, trying to, you know, people trying to convince them not to do it. And then at the moment where they turn and fire, everything stops. And there is a character who animates the bullet moving in slow motion across the stage. And they've just counted down from 10 to 1, because that's how you do a duel. And Hamilton counts backwards or something from 1 to 10. He, he, He inverts the number and does this incredible piece that is recounting all of the moments of his life. And it's, I'm like, like, I don't usually, this doesn't usually happen to me, but I'm getting emotional describing it because it's so freaking good. And it's like, it's him going from being a child and learning how to write and and coming to America as an immigrant and all of his passions and all of his things are kind of flashing before him in this series of numbers up until the moment where the bullet hits him. And I feel like this moment of like, what is the spirit of mistletoe? What is the spirit of mistletoe? Is that kind of Hamilton moment that musical theater moment of like and you know it's a it's a trope it's used in storytelling of yeah this life-changing event is in the midst of happening and we're gonna pause it to think about it in the hamilton regard it's also the the life flashing before the eyes too very much so and i suppose no it's not quite as specific for this piece for loki itself but there there is that moment of remove there and perhaps regret? May, uh, maybe. I don't know. What part, what do you see that is regret in here? I don't know. Seemed innocent of prank misfired. Seemed innocent of prank misfired. I, I just wonder, because you described so eloquently last week the idea that this is Loki going too far. Yeah. I wonder if there is a moment of him realizing like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. Wow. Oh, this might have consequences. Okay, well, we'll figure it out. Maybe that's what that slow motion bit is. Did I go too far here? But it's it's far too late. Am I the drama? I don't think I'm the drama. I'm not the bad guy, right? Right. Am I the bad guy? It was so unfair when they were so mean to me after I engineered the death of the guy that everybody liked. <laughs> I just, I make people laugh. They I just make didn't people laugh. The joke. It was a joke. <laughs> right, yeah. Exactly. No, not okay. Not okay. Not okay. So yeah, we've got this seemed innocent, a prank misfired, the great shapeshifter firebrand, two-faced fool, the jester bold, grasps at opportunities to turn his coat self-satisfy and go wherever he might please. Yeah, 
That's like, mm. oh, that's perfect description of him. Two-faced. Yeah. He will always look out for himself. He'll turn on you on a dime. He's got kids with the giants. He's friends with the giants. He tries to ingratiate himself with every single one of the gods, most likely just so he can have a favor. Yep. In the long run. Or get the dirt on someone. It's never a matter of like, oh, it's so I can have power. It's so I can screw somebody else over because it's hilarious. Yeah. And that's the thing that is so fascinating about these these trickster figures. Uh-huh. If you look at Hermes, who kind of is that role. Yeah. Or Br'er Rabbit or Coyote or, you know, all of these Anazi the African spider. Anansi. Anansi. Anansiate. <laughs> or the monkey king. Mm-hmm. In Chinese mythology. Yep. The crow. The crow is also a trickster. Yep. The raven. Mm-hmm. All of them do stuff without thinking it through. Yeah. Like that sort of is the, the hallmark of a trickster character is they're going to do something that no one else can do and they just have the impulse to do it and do it and then realize, oh no, something bad has happened to me because of that. <laughs> yeah, right. And they never learn their lesson. No, never. Or something good has happened for humanity. Right, yeah. That's actually, that's a good point. That's a lot of those trickster myths are those explanatory tales of that's why we have mountains and that's why we yes. have a coconut tree and that's why we have this and that you know it's i mean there there are other stories where like this god did this or whatever but i feel like a lot of it falls on the backs of the tricksters for that to happen because it's it's always an unexpected consequence it's always inadvertent yes. but it happens and and it turns out that humanity the mortals can benefit from it after they put out the fire <laughs> or, yes, I read a theory once that trickster figures came from the observation of of certain animal behaviors, mm. such as food stealing. That there are certain animals that will, oh. instead of hunt, they will wait until something else hunts. And then when the animal is dead and the hunter is all tired out, they're like, Shkidoop. Yeah, hyenas are notorious for that, yeah. Absolutely. Or... I was just talking with my mother-in-law about the cowbird. Mm. The cowbird will find a nest that has eggs in it of a different species, kick out one of the eggs and lay its own egg in there. And then that's it. They don't rear their own chicks. They let somebody else do it. It's just like the um, cuckoo. It's the cuckoo. Oh, the cuckoo. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, 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 yes. So this idea of unfaithfulness to the order of things. Yeah. To tricking the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think is very much at the heart of the trickster mythos. Even Prometheus, in a way, is kind of a heroic trickster. He steals fire from the gods. Yeah. And gives it to his favorite creation. Right. Exactly. What would be the trickster in the, in like, in the Christian context? Satan? Seth, Satan, have this apple, sight. <laughs> now you know you're naked. Yeah, and that's, I think, that's why I like, okay, no, you're totally right. And B, this is why I like other mythologies, because 
in a lot of the mythologies, the trickster isn't evil. Even Loki isn't really regarded as evil. He's just right. very bad. Yeah. And caused the destruction of the world. Christianity feels like the most, the Judeo religions are the most black and white. Anti-fun. Yes, that. Also that. Yeah. And there's far more wiggle room when it's kind of a, a more of a loosey-goosey religion slash culture, you know, Greek, Roman, Norse, indigenous peoples, things like that. Yeah, totally, totally. Yes, the Native American cultures are famously loosey-goosey. That they are, after they have peyote. <laughs> Actually, probably not. That's, that's, a, that's a, a ritual substance for them, right? It's not recreational. No, 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 no. It's, it's religious. It's only, it's only recreational for the gringos. Right. Even though you are correct in saying that Judeo-Christian culture has precious little room for tricksters officially, by that same virtue, it was tradition in the European courts for royalty to keep fools. Mm -hmm. And the fool is often called the sacred fool or the, or the divine fool. Power structures, intense hierarchical power structures often need a, a pressure valve. Yeah. And so having a fool who can say the thing that nobody else can say, say the obvious thing that no one else can say, rebuke the person in power. Right. Great example of that in Twelfth Night. Shakespeare's clowns are a good example of that too, yeah. Yeah. When Olivia is getting too depressed and Feste says... Take the fool away, referring to her, mm -hmm. and proves to her by logic that she is overdoing it with grief for her brother. Hmm. So it's interesting that even though in the religious text of the culture, there isn't necessarily room for that. I mean, maybe in a way, Jesus is the trickster. I mean, Vicar John was, is very comfortable and confident in saying that he had a sense of humor. Yeah, that, that conversation really opened my eyes. I mean, that whole thing, the whole religion and preaching was really a big trick to get Judas to kiss him on the lips. That's it. He really... It's a long game. He played the long game on that one. He did. And it was worth it. Going back to Feste really quick, have you ever read Christopher Moore's Fool? No. It's told from the point of view of... Who's the fool in um in Lear? I think it's just called I think he's just called the fool. Okay, in in the book he's called Pocket, but it's oh it's so good. And there, there's a second one too. I don't remember what it's called, but I I had both of them until I lent them and never received them back. And now I don't lend people my books, but I highly recommend them. This is why I don't borrow books. <laughs> Cuz I don't know how to read. <laughs> Cuz I have enough doorstops. <laughs> uh, but yes, highly recommended. Back to Loki. Back to Loki. What is the reference? Little giant skin so thick. Little giant skin so thick. Why is he referred to as little giant? I can tell you why. <laughs> I know that there's some association with Loki and the and the giants, the the the, mm -hmm. the Hoten. Jotun. The Jotun. The Hoten Jotun. He has a giant mistress. Angerboda. Yep. He cavorts with the giants. Mm -hmm. And in 
the Marvel universe, they've taken the step of further associating Loki with the giants to to say that his mother was a, a giant or his father was a giant. His dad. Yeah, his dad is a giant. It's Farbauti is a giant. It was his father, yeah. In the actual mythology. In yeah, yeah. In Norse oh. mythology, yeah. So who was his mother? She is mentioned as a goddess, but she's referred to as Laufey. He's frequently referred to as Loki Laufey Yarsen, which is the matronymic, so so son of Laufey. That, I believe, is why he's referred to as Little Giant. Right, yeah. To answer your question that you just answered for me after asking me, which I thank you for. Score. But also, I think that it's fascinating to see in a system where you have these worlds that are separate. And obviously there's crossover between the worlds, but you very much have Elfheim, uh, Svartalfheim, you have Humanheim, you have the Asir, you have the other gods that we don't really even talk about that much. You have Hotenheim, mm-hmm. Jotunheim. <laughs> Tim Hortons. Tim Hortonheim. <laughs> a donut and a coffee for just one dwarf. <laughs> So you have this kind of, you have hell, you know, you have all these worlds that are very distinct. Of course, there is communication between them, but everyone's very serious about those distinctions. Mm-hmm. Loki is proof. It, he is a physical representation. His existence is representative of the fact that things are messy in this world and or can be messy. Yeah. And I think that that's part of why the gods don't like him. Because my impression of the Asir is that they are very a little bit rigid in their view of things. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The gods are the gods and the gods are the best. And we only ever deal with the giants when they owe us something or we have to get something back or we just want to kill them. Exactly. And so having to always be confronted with this presence of this this guy that we have to invite to the parties, but we hate inviting him to the parties, partly because he always... You know, it reminds us of the fact that we are capable of breeding with the other races, but also because he's just such a dick. He's like that second cousin who still shows up to holidays that you're like, why? Did anyone actually invite Mark? <laughs> no, but we can't tell him not to come. He's Because family. he's technically family. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He does have this kind of really strange amorphous position in all of this yeah yeah so moving to ian's gloss on the subject yes i find this very interesting because ian is somebody who both has taken on the persona of the trickster but also is very clear that that's not really who he is you're saying overall, for a while, he kind of had that kind of rascally scamp persona before he became a farmer, yes. basically. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And he has often written songs that capture that trickster energy. Mm-hmm. He's able to tap into it without getting sucked into it. Yeah, right, right. And this is kind of a proof for that. The class clown sits at the back of class, throws paper darts blot paper balls to bounce a heads of swats like me provoke a fight when lunch break calls the class clown sits in back of class throws paper 
the comparison to the dart of mistletoe to the paper spitball we used to call them i think that's the a blot paper ball so paper dart is probably just like a thrown wad of paper as opposed to blot paper balls would be a spitball i think it may be even a, a step further i think blot paper might be back in the days when you would write with pen and and inkwells oh okay blotting paper would be paper that would be specially designed to soak up ink, extra ink that was on your page. Okay. If you rolled that up and dipped it in ink and then spat it through a tube, when it hits, it goes ink splat. Yeah, that's a good point. Which is hilarious. Yeah. And awful. And awful. A SWAT, S-W-O-T, it's Brit slang to study or work hard. A SWAT like me is someone who's actually doing the work, doing the schoolwork, the classwork. The Asir. Yeah, exactly. His tiresome japes, the prods and pokes, the neverlasting friendships made, bring only our feigned approval, soon resigned to trusts betrayed. His tiresome japes, the prods and pokes, the neverlasting friendships made, bring only our feigned approval, Who hurt you, Ian? Who hurt you in grade school? That's a perfect description of Loki, though. Like, spot on. That works. If you do that one Marvel one-shot of all of the Thor characters in middle school, that's exactly what Loki would be. Totally. And I love that Ian takes it to this... You know, he paints this this quite black-and-white picture, this quite simple picture of class clown, I'm trying to study, he's throwing spitballs at me. And he could end it there and just say, I, and I always hated that kid. Right, yeah, what a dick. But I love that he takes it this step further of like, not only did I hate that kid at first, the real thing that I hate is that he made me his friend. And then I felt obligated to be friends with him. And then he betrayed me. Yeah. That's the thing with Loki that really gets under your skin is you're like, I know I shouldn't trust this person. Why am I trusting this person Oh my God, why did I ever trust this person? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a charisma there. Exactly. He gets beneath your defenses and uses that, uses that to his advantage. Hey, Hoder, let me help you out, buddy. You want to experience this? I've got the thing for you. Just throw the start. Right. Don't trust Loki. Don't trust Loki. Don't trust Loki. But I Don't trust do want to have fun. <laughs> okay, Loki. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He recognized the weakness of the moment of Hoder being kind of out of place, and he took advantage of it. Mm -hmm. Going back to the biological function of trickster inspiration beings, that's what those animals do. Yeah. Like the crow coming and stealing the food from a wolf that's just hunted something down. Yeah, right. Or a raven coming and stealing something, you know. Because the animal is so tired from having hunted that is their weakness. That is both, that is their strength and their weakness. Right. The trickster is cunning because it, it can use. It's cun. It can use its cun. It knows how to work the system to get the greatest results with the least amount of effort. That's it. And plausible deniability a little bit. Like Loki said, oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I didn't throw the dart. Mm. 
I just wanted to help hold her art. I didn't know that mistletoe was the only thing that had not signed on to the petition of don't hurt. Yeah. Freya said that she talked to everybody. It's really Freya's fault. Yeah. I assumed that she meant that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God, I love it. It's really good. I love that kind of character. That's very much, you know, that's kind of the character that I'm that I'm playing mm. right now in, in Measure for Measure. Very Lucio. Always finding an angle, always finding how to not be attached to his to the consequences of his actions. Yeah. Always figuring out how to manipulate people to their faults. It took me forever to realize this, but the whole fact that he not only goes and talks to Isabella to say, yeah, your brother wants you to go and talk to Angelo, but because he knows who Angelo is and he sees what a unique woman Isabella is, yeah, he does what he does best, which is to pimp. And so he's like, I think I can pimp to my advantage. I'm gonna pimp harder than I've ever pimped before. I'm gonna pimp a nun to Mr. Asceticism over here. Everyone hold my pimp cane. I'm gonna pimp. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Everyone told me you couldn't possibly pimp a nun. I said, hold my pimp juice, baby. <laughs> so here's a question. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember when we got somebody writing into us saying that they were they were that little boy who was the inspiration for Thick as a Brick? Gerald Bostock, yeah. That they were Gerald Bostock, that they had gone to school with mm -hmm. Ian and they were living in this fantasy of that they had showed Ian up in a in a poetry contest and Thick as a Brick was Ian's getting revenge on them. Yeah, I do. We corresponded back and forth like maybe twice. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. Let's meet up. I want to talk to you. Absolutely. Let's set up a meeting. Let's do this. Never heard back from him again. I think I'm going to find that email and use that as a feckless now that I think about it. That would be a really good episode. <laughs> I think ultimately I, what am I happening is that we ultimately were like, this is a great story. Like regardless of this is true, this is such an, an amusing story. Right. We would love to go further with you on this path, but you have to provide some kind of proof that you were at the school, that you, you know, anything. And Tumbleweeds. Failed, failed to produce any proof. Nothing. Right. But this little two line, this little two stanza moment kind of could exist in that universe, in that alternate universe of that Gerald Bostock made me be friends with him and then betrayed me with his poetry. Or is it really the case where Gerald is talking about Ian in that sense, based on that email that we got from him? That Ian was the class clown, yeah. that Ian was writing this reflexively about his own behavior. And Gerald was the SWAT. Meh. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I forgot all about that. I love that idea. Old Jerry B. I am going to forever now say that I'm part of a SWAT team. <laughs> I study really hard. <laughs> It's not S-W-A-T, it's S-W-O-T. Yeah. Nick, anything else to say about Trickster and the mistletoe? The only thing that I want to mention is that this kind of fits into the, the song, the sonic, the first half, but it works here too. So traditionally, traditionally, quote unquote, what we've heard the last seven songs is first three stanzas are the, the past the poetic Eda side of things. They all have a specific sound. We hit a very distinct 
kind of bridgey portion. And then Ian's interpretation sounds a little bit different. Mm -hmm. A little similar, got the same vein, but it's a little different. This one, because it's so bonkers all over the place, we have the first two verses are da, 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 da. On the third verse, the last one of the poetic Eda part is when he breaks into that talk speech. Uh-huh. Talk singing, rather. Then we get into a little bit of a breakdown. First verse of his portion is the high lilty, and then the second part of his interpretation is that talk singing again. Uh -huh. So it's not as demarcated as we've heard before. I just thought it was peculiar. It's it's all kind of mixed in here on this one. And maybe that is because of the Loki influence that it's all a little bit, the borders are a little uh, less defined. Yeah, they bleed onto both sides. I think that's, whether we intended or not, it works pretty darn well. I think that that sonic representation of Loki really fits with this song. And it, I mean, can't be terribly convenient that it's on this song and it's the only time we've heard it so far. Yeah. You know? It is very interesting. Just a little note about Mistletoe. Mm. After the incident, Frigg, who had previously said, oh, Mistletoe is too young to swear. She went to the Mistletoe and she said, she said, you will never again be used as a weapon. Ever, 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 ever. Mm. And basically said, you will now only be an object of peace and of love because the death that you have caused has been so terrible that you only get one. <laughs> Was it worth it, mistletoe? Was it worth so, it? <laughs> so in Norse culture, mistletoe is a symbol of peace and love and fertility, as it is in European culture. Mistletoe etymologically mistletoe. So the toe comes from tan, which means twig, but missile, they don't really know. It's it's an unknown origin, but it is where missile thrush, oh, the missile thrush is coming, Jack put out the light. Oh, the missile thrush is coming, Jack put out the light. It's the same oh, interesting. root for that. It's a mystery twig. It's a mystery twig, yeah. I've encountered a few mystery twigs before. And you always give them a firm handshake. I, I, you know what? How else are baby six-legged horses going to get made? <laughs> You're just doing your part, Omen. That's... I'm doing my part. Doing your part. Nick, what are we talking about next week when we will be nine-twelfths through this album? Next week if I remember correctly, is another kind of odd-sounding one. This is the pretty one, if I remember correctly. This is Cornucopia. I thought I was the pretty one, but yes, this is, coming up next week, Cornucopia. That's right. Next week. Cornucopia. Until next week, you don't need to be a great shapeshifter to represent the podcast. All you need to do is buy a Talk Told To Me t-shirt or hat or mug, and you can represent us that way, and then take the shirt off. You don't have to shape shift. It was weak. No neverlasting friendships are made in our Patreon Discord chat, only real friendships based on the mutual love of the works of Jethro Tull and one Ian Anderson. 
I need it to be known here that if you don't give us a five-star rating and review, you may provoke a fight when lunch break calls. That's right. Until next week, I continue to self-satisfy Omen Thomas Sade. <laughs> I am a prank misfired Nick McGill. We are the fools with two faces, the Feckles Moms. And what is this podcast of mistletoe? Oh, it's Talk Tall to Me. Sleepnir, come here. Come here. Oh, human Loki. Oh, my master, my human master. I'm so excited for today's festivities. I see you've made me a special hay cake. I did. I'm so proud of you for graduating horse school. You're now a horse to go off into the world, and you can do your own thing. You can get out of the barn oh. and do your own thing, sleep near. Do you think because I got an A in prancing and an A-plus in tail flicking that I shall be very successful? I see a very fruitful career in dressage for you, sleep near. With all six hooves, <laughs> you'll put all of them to shame. Look at my new shiny adult horseshoes. Clip, clop, clip, clop, clip, clop, clip, clop. Oh, so fancy. You've always been a fancy boy. Master Loki, I must ask you a question. Please, anything. I've spent many nights pondering in the barn, munching on oats and thinking to myself about deep thought questions such as the following. How does a horsey get a bank account? Well... You need something to deposit in it. You know what? I was going to save this for the party, but I'll give this to you now. Here are three sugar cubes and a salt lick. <laughs> you can go to the First National Bank of the Aesir and deposit those, and they will gain interest. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait to count my sugar cubes and watch them grow. Oh, Loki, good good master Loki, I have another question for you. Yes, absolutely. So often when the Asir maidens have been stroking my coat and, and braiding my mane, I've asked myself, what happens when a horsey dies? Well, a horsey goes off to the great Valhalla, of course. If you are an honorable horse, you go to Valhalla. Oh, what happens if you were bad horsey? If you're a bad horse, you go to hell. Oh! My sister, actually. Auntie Hell, you'll go see Auntie Hell. Oh, well, then in that case, I hope that I will be a bad horsey. Oh, I hope you will. I raised you right. Master Loki, Master Loki, I have one more question for you. Yes. Where did Slipnir come from? Who are Slipnir's mummy and daddy horsey? Oh. I must know, for to get into a horsey graduate school, you must fill out a, a full family history. That's right. Your stock, if you are claiming to be thoroughbred, you have to provide your lineage. I, I understand that. Well, your, uh, your father... 
was a very handsome stallion who could pull many, many, many rocks and stones on a sled. He was so strong. That's why I am so strong and- Correct. And why my prancing is so robust. Watch this, watch this, Loki. Trot, 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 trot. Oh, yes, there's those moves that I taught you. Yes. Oh, those fancy moves, your, your withers quiver. Who was my mummy horsey? Oh, yes. <clears throat> About that. Your mummy horse, he loved you very much. Was she very beautiful? The most beautiful horse. Only the most beautiful mummy horse for your handsome, strong, brave daddy horse. Of course. Was daddy horse very much in love with mummy horsey? Indeed he was. He was so in love they made you upon their first meeting. Is Mummy Horsey still alive? Does she prance in the forever meadows of the Valhalla Sphere? I think that's probably not likely. I don't think she'll be going to Valhalla. But... Oh. But she might be with Auntie Hell. What? You mean she was a bad horsey? Just like you're a bad horsey. Oh, yes. Just like I'm a bad horsey. Which right. is you're a bad horsey. What, what's, what's this in the I, family I, photo album? I mean, it's it's time I, I told you the truth. What? Sleep near. Under Slipmere's mummy, there's just a picture of you. <laughs> what does it all mean? When a daddy horse and a mommy horse that's actually a shape-shifting trickster god, fall in love. Yes? They have sleep near. But that means that Talk Tall to me is nothing but a proud member of the Peckless Moms Audio Network. Nay! I love you, sleep near. Nay! Trot, 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 trot.